Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. My name is Kristen Harcourt, and I'm your host. I'm an executive coach and professional speaker. And I started this show because I'm super passionate about humanizing the workplace and really investing in leadership development. And from my perspective, leadership development is it really starts with leading the self, and that's around emotional intelligence, mindfulness, self-awareness. And when we have leaders who understand ourselves better, we have workplaces where people get more excited to go to work, they can do their best work, and there's a lot more happiness and joy and more purpose behind what they're doing. And today's guest is going to have a lot to share with you. I'm excited to introduce you. And I want to introduce you to Tina Varighese. And Tina is the president of T-Works. And she specializes in cross-cultural communication, work-life balance, and inclusive leadership, a phenomenal keynote speaker, and facilitates workshops on this as well. Welcome to the show, Tina. Thank you for having me, Kristen. I'm, I'm so excited to get into this conversation, and I, I love starting off um, to help our guests get to know you better. Um, Tina, tell me a little bit more about your story and what got you to where you are now and the work that you're doing. So I, before I became a professional speaker, I actually worked with both municipal and provincial levels of government, and one of my key jobs was to work in the immigration department. I was spearheading a lot of international recruitment missions, looking for skilled workers that we needed in Canada and working with, you know, entrepreneurs that were coming from different countries. And I realized really quickly two things. First of all, that being born in Canada is such a privilege. And I didn't even realize that until I started working with people that truly chose Canada to be their home, coupled with the fact that I um, realized when I decided to leave government that we have a demographic, a cultural demographic that's only growing uh, with 20% of Canadians being foreign born. I realized there's a huge gap in terms of understanding when it comes to cultural differences and that can be both opportunities and challenge. And so I really wanted to help mitigate and manage that, those gaps in the workplace and, and help people um, understand each other, communicate more effectively and really um, help build bridges rather than barriers. So I got into that space. I then um, started speaking heavily on unconscious bias as well. And that probably that journey was sort of a fluid journey, it was sort of a natural. So I, I speak on cultural differences. My, my top keynote or used to be actually was called 50 Shades of Beige, Communicate with the Cross-Cultural Advantage. And I would say since Black Lives Matters, and even before, I had a lot of demand for uh, my keynote that I'm, that I'm really doing a lot of now, which is called What is Unconscious Bias? Making a First Impression in Seven Seconds or Less. Being a person of color coupled with being a child of immigrants, I really felt that I might be able to help people really understand this um, this space. I think with racial tensions and political tensions increasing, I felt I could maybe offer some, some guidance, hopefully, to, to people. And I, I kind of take it from a different perspective. You know, I use a lot of personal stories and I use myself as a conduit to tell other people's stories. I use a lot of business strategy. I have a BCom uh, as well as a BA in poli-sci. So I really take it from a, a, a background of business. But at the same time, I use a lot of humor. I like to use humor to help people feel really comfortable with being uncomfortable. And, and that's sort of the space that I'm in right now. 
Yeah, Tina, I think you do such a great job of helping to disarm people with topics that can be can be sometimes quite heated. It can be, there's lots of beliefs. And as you're saying, we're going to talk a little bit more about this when it comes to unconscious bias. Um, lots of the pe- things that people have taken on that are, are generational, right? Generation after generation. So, um, you know, one of the things that I've really tried to hold on to um, during, a, 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 like you said, there's been a lot going on for the last seven months, one being, of course, a global pandemic, um, but more awareness showing up in conversations and I think really important conversations around Black Lives Matter, um, but trying to really hold the perspective that we need to have a lot of compassion. And one of my mottos has been, um, you can't fight self-righteousness with more self-righteousness. And so I love what you're saying there around, um, you know, finding those ways to, yes, make people get comfortable with being uncomfortable, but also create a space that is going to be more conducive for having those really important conversations. Absolutely. I'm a big believer of courageous conversation and creating psychologically safe environments. And I do feel we've come to a place where we're walking on eggshells. And I hear that all the time. Oh, I can't say anything. I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. I don't want to say anything. And I'm like, no, that's now we've gone too far the other way, which always happens with these issues. And so I, I really want people to have those courageous conversations and, and, and have everybody have a voice. You know, everyone should be seen, heard and acknowledged. And so I, I really try to just be a conduit to that and give people a platform to feel like they can ask those questions that maybe they'd be afraid to ask in the past. Yes, yes. So let's just start there when we we think about unconscious bias. um, And there's been a lot of conversations happening around um, unconscious biases. But I even wanted to start from your perspective, like when you think of unconscious bias, what does that mean? So I think that Pete, first of all, you know, I, I, with virtual work, I tend to ask a lot of questions, engage the audience a lot. And what I've realized, and this isn't a a shame or blame thing by any stretch, but a lot of people don't actually even know what an unconscious bias is. You know, they really have no idea what that is. And I always say, you know, that's okay. Let's start from, you know, 101 here. Let's start from the beginning. And so in essence, when when we're talking about, so there's actually 170 statistically proven uh, unconscious biases, probably increasing with time. I tend to focus on the top seven that tend to uh, dominate the workplace. And I always, every time I speak, I always say it's going to permeate both in your professional and personal life. So when we're looking at bias, we tend to have biases in, in the following areas, gender, race, religion, sexual orientation, age, weight, and disability, both physical and emotional. And so those would be the key places that we have biases. So when I speak, I don't only focus on the racial piece. I actually try to give understanding of all of those biases, even invisible biases that we don't even realize we have. I also make it incredibly clear and prove the point with people you know, on the line that we all have unconscious biases. We're just not aware that we have those unconscious biases. And having those biases against others does not make us racist. It doesn't make us discriminatory. It, it makes us human. It's okay to have those biases. I don't personally think we can break bias because I really wanted to call my keynote breaking bias, like breaking bad, because I love, love fun titles, but I actually had to change it. And because I don't think you can break bias, but I do hundred percent feel you can manage and mitigate your own biases, but that starts with, with us. It starts with really taking a lens where we actually see the world 
um, in a way that's mu with much more clarity and we become conscious to what we've been unconscious to for a very long time. Mm. And so that work starts with us. And sometimes that can be scary for some people. It, it may make people feel very vulnerable. I think that's why we're seeing a lot of division uh, even on social media, you can see division. I think that's fear-based. I think people are really scared to, you know, maybe recognize and realize they had biases that they didn't realize. And, and they also don't realize that it is okay to have those biases. You know, that's, there's reasons for it. It's the neuroscience of our brains. That's why we have bias. So it's not a bad thing. It's, it's recognizing, first of all, that we have it, and then that's okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what do you, um, so I like what you even start off with, and I think that's important is just letting people even know what it is, right? Because sometimes people are afraid to even ask the question. Yeah. And so then yeah. when you start um, talking more to people, where do you think people might get unconscious bias wrong? Like, um, and, and, and I also try not to get into the whole right and wrong dichotomy, but where they might be surprised or where they might have misunderstood conscious, unconscious bias. Well, I think sometimes they feel there might be um, systemic racism might be mixed up with unconscious bias. And they're two very, very different things. So systemic racism really is much more conscious, but it's sometimes so subtle that people don't even realize and will fight that it doesn't exist, particularly in Canada. We think, oh no, no you know, that might be a, a problem in the States, but we don't have it here. And I'm like, well, actually, you know, we do, we do have it here. If you look at, you know, the indigenous with residential schools, you know, that piece right there is historically cemented in having systemic racism. But, you know, even if you look at something like the Chinese head tax, when, the Chinese were building uh, the, the railroad and then wanted to stay. Well, they had to pay a head tax. So historically, we have systemic racism. But systemic racism exists now. The, the piece that people don't understand, and that's the piece that's tied to white privilege, is that it, the privilege piece isn't because of what you have. It's what you have not experienced. And so systemic racism comes with the privilege of not having to experience what people that are black, indigenous, people of color, BIPOC, would have experienced. So those stories are prevalent. For example, you know, having um, walking around if you're if you're black, indigenous in a store, and they I've heard many stories and I've interviewed many people where they're they're followed around in a store because they're targeted to seem like they're gonna steal something. Well, is it written in a manual somewhere that employees should be doing that? No, so there's no proof, but it's the, that story, it's that experience. Well, that's very prevalent, it's very real. Heard of another story with a, um, a, a gentleman, he, uh, he was in one of my, one of my keynotes and on the chat, we, we talked about it and he wears a turban. And he said 98% of the time, he goes through an airport and he's, he's chosen. And one of his colleagues noticed it because he was traveling with them all the time. And he said to him, you know, why, why, he asked the airport security, well, why was he chosen? And they just said, well, it's random. Can't be random 98% of the time. So that is systemic racism right there. So it happens in Canada, it happens on a daily basis. 
Yes. Thank you for bringing that up because I have heard this conversation many times where it's like, oh, everyone wants to move from the United States to Canada because none of that happens here. And no, we all have um, areas of growth and opportunities for, for growth. And, um, and so if you think about your work with organizations, because um, I think with anything, it's like planting seeds. It's not like it happens overnight, right? Change. And this is when we start to think about change, it's a long-term strategy. And I think you need to be in it for the long haul, not that, oh, we'll just, we're kind of in this Amazon Prime instant gratification society these days. And doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. So what have you noticed when you're working with organizations um, in terms of starting to take different steps? Um, What do you notice has a really good impact in terms of as a starting point to start to make these changes? So I've only noticed diversity and inclusion initiatives with companies in Canada in the last three years. So ones that are very proactive started on their DNI initiatives three years ago. So a lot of them are only starting now and, and that doesn't matter, you know, as long as you have a start point. And I, I really think a first key piece is, is developing your people and training them and having them understand. And so even offering some of that training, um, some, some professional development in terms of, you know, understanding your own biases or understanding, you know, what, what some of this, this terminology means. I think you also have to really be aware, and I've noticed it with companies that I work with, because I'm unbiased, coming in third party, yeah. and I really believe a lot of this stems from leadership. If, if you have a corporation with a leadership that's very open, transparent, you can tell as an outsider coming into work if it's a psychologically safe environment. And so, you know, if you're open as an organization to have somebody work with your company in a transparent manner where you have no issues, if, you know, someone comes in and interviews your employees in a 360 basis, 360 way, and isn't worried. And if you have employees that are willing to share their stories, even if it might have something happened internally, externally, whatever, that's a really good sign to know that, yeah, you know what, you do have a psychologically safe environment in your workplace. And that's a really, I think, a key indicator because, you know, if people are silent, well, that's a sign right there. You know, if you have a lot of, if you're, if you are um, surrounded by silence when it comes to your employees, you know, that should be a wake up call for, for organizations. If, if even at, at meetings, boardroom table, whatever it might be, if you have a lot of silence, yeah. that should be an indicator right there. Absolutely. There has to be that, that comfort and the, um, that there's trust in the psychological safety that they know they can come forward and um, that something's going to be done with it, that they're not going to get in trouble for speaking up. And that kind of brings me back to what you were saying. And, and I think I know one of the things you're going to say is there has to be a culture that creates that this, this allows this to happen. Um, so let's say that culture does exist. Um, what do you think courageous conversations look like? How can you start to build that skill as a leader? Because I 100% agree with you. Um, until the leaders do their work and then figure out ways that they're either part of it or part of the solution or how they're creating some of these um, or allowing, I think sometimes it's the bystander or micro behaviors are showing up and we're not talking about those micro behaviors. Um, how do leaders start to get uh, more equipped to have those courageous conversations? Well, I think there's a huge difference between being a leader and being a boss. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So a leader 
you know, is someone that is, is not only willing to offer feedback, but a willing to accept feedback. And if you're not willing to accept feedback openly without defense as a leader, you're probably a boss. And a boss is someone who's simply bossy, demanding, you know, off, gives, uh, you know, tasks, task oriented. So there's a big difference right there. So I think you have to do a little bit of a deep dive to figure out, you know, what kind of leader are you? Are you, you know, have look at your own leadership traits. I think now with our workforce becoming so generous generationally um, diverse as well. So we're looking at the millennials being one of the largest groups that we're working with. And I've noticed just from a stats perspective, as well as working with millennials, you know, they're the most open to change. Mm. So recognizing, you know what, we can learn so much from our own resource. And sometimes that's when I bang my head against the wall when leadership teams, leadership teams need to be strategic. But our teams, the, the, the employees underneath those leadership teams should be operational. And the problem is sometimes leaders get stuck putting out fires and recognizing they have to solve everything. No, they're just simply not using the resource that they have at hand because they're not trusting that they're going to come up with potential solutions. So really utilizing, you know, your workforce in a way where there's trust involved, you know, not having to, to put out the fires all the time, but remaining strategic, remaining open to hearing that feedback, remaining open to, to uh, professional development. You know, if you actually think like you, you see organizations, sometimes they're put into these leadership roles because of um, they've been put there because they've been there for a number of years. Well, it doesn't necessarily make a, a leader, you know, just because you've been working with a company for 20 years or 25 years doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to be able to develop your, the people that are underneath you. So I think a key piece here is that it has to start with leadership. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm such a firm believer that we have to remember that individuals go from being individual contributors into leadership a lot of time with no training. No, it's just all of a sudden like, here you go. You're a leader now. Here's your team. Good luck with that. And as you and I both know, it's, it's such a change in dynamics, right? It went from you're the individual contributor, you're focused on your results, you're focused on yourself. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, all of a sudden, you're actually having a lot more of the people components in your day to day. And what, what does that look like to lead people, to be able to have trust, to be able to delegate, to be able to help challenge them and find, help, help them find ways to grow. And guess what? Sometimes that does take longer at the beginning, but in the long run, it actually um, creates efficiencies because those individuals are learning how to do things that you were previously doing. But that's a whole, that's a whole dynamic that can be quite uncomfortable for many leaders to let go. And it Very might look much. a little different. Their version of the way it's done in your version might not be the same. And then sometimes there might be feedback and mentoring and growth opportunities around what went well, what didn't go well. Um, so I'm, I'm a firm believer, and it sounds like you, you agree with this as well, is that we need to be giving resources and training and development for our leaders so that we are setting them up for success. Yes. And I also think, you know, I always hear this. Sometimes people are very different at the workplace than they are at home. And we lead at home as <laughs> in the same token as we lead at work. And it's so easy as parents, if you look at your parenting style, you know, do you do everything for your kids because of frustration? You know, do you pick up 
all of the clothes off the floor because you're frustrated? Or do you teach them how to do it themselves? Because if you look at the efficiency of that, if yes, it's going to take you more time to develop these skills in your own kids. But if you take the time to develop those skills in, in your kids, they're going to learn how to do it themselves. They're going to get very used to having, you know, a clean room. They're going to create those healthy habits. It's no different than leadership. You know, yeah. if you put that development into your employees at the top, at the beginning, and, you know, especially when they're being onboarded and, and really develop them so that they understand, you know, you care, you, you're, you've been seen, you've been heard, you've been acknowledged. So if you go into it like that as a leader, no different than you would as a parent and develop them that way. Well, what's it going to do for you? You are now going to have a team that's, you're not, it's not that people management anymore that I've heard from so many leaders that is so draining, but now your team is actually aligned with what you're trying to do. You're all on the same, on the same path because you put that, that time and development into them. So it's, uh, it's, it's really important. I think to, to, to like a lot of people, I don't think we do this enough. We don't do the self-discovery work to figure out, you know, am I yelling a lot at home? Do I yell? Like, am I frustrated at work all the time? Am I, you know, am I constantly agitated? Am I stressed out? Am I, uh, you know, hot tempered? Am I, am I constantly putting out fires? Like really step back and, and think about how do I lead? What type of leader am I? What do I want? And you know, and what's the end goal here? What am I trying to do? Yeah, what you've just shared there is is so related to so much of the work around emotional intelligence because you start to recognize all of those patterns, right? Those times that, oh, what's going on for me? What's what am I experiencing with my emotions? Am I recognizing their emotions and what do they need in this moment? And what's my self-regulation when I'm noticing I'm stressed? Where do I go to? And impulse control and what's the self-talk? And and yeah. I say all the time, Tina, the connection to raising kids and raising employees, because what do kids want to have a lot of positive reinforcement? You're feeling seen and heard. Someone's acknowledging what goes well. Now, that doesn't mean you're not giving feedback around areas of growth and where gaps might exist. But also, if, they're, if you're constantly focusing on what they're not doing well and where they're struggling and, and all of those things constantly your kids aren't going to feel as engaged. And it's the same thing in the workplace, right? If you're always focusing on what they do wrong and not recognizing like, Hey, I like what you did there. That was really great. Maybe you could do even more of this, like continue totally. leveraging this, that feels motivating. That feels yeah. engaging. That feels like, Oh, thanks for recognizing something in myself that I might've not even recognized. Yes. And I think you hit it on the head with the emotional intelligence piece coupled with, you know, I do this um, when I do workshops, and uh, it's such an interesting exercise. It's almost textbook, how people react. And in essence, it's really like, how do people need to receive feedback? And so if I said to you, Kristen, you know, you're rocking it as a podcaster right now. Well, that's positive feedback. But if I said to you, Kristen, you're rocking it as a podcaster right now because you're asking engaging questions using business terminology that I can relate to. Well, what are you going to do on your next podcast? You're going to use a lot of that feedback, which is specific feedback and do more of that. And that's how you need to direct people. It's not just saying you're rocking it or you're, you're really not good at blah, blah, blah. You have to be very specific in what people are doing really well, 
or, or not doing really well because that's the only way they can create change. So that's sort of that leadership training. People, don't, people aren't even trained on, you know, how to offer feedback effectively, how to run a meeting. Like there's a lot of dynamic to it. Now add the pieces of when you have a culturally diverse workforce and now you have generationally diverse workforce. What about the personality? You know, introverts, extroverts, there's so much. Uh, involved in the workplace, and we, I just don't think necessarily leaders are given that skill set all the time, or they're not open to receiving the the professional development. I I can remember, you know, when I was I call it working in a real job, and I was <laughs> offered professional development opportunities, but to be honest, I had so much work on my plate that I didn't feel I could take a day or two to go to a conference or to, you know, go to a, a workshop because I had so much on my plate. So, you know, that needs to be built into strategic business plans. You know, what kind of training are we offering? How much of that is, you know, really developing our employees and mandated to be encouraged to do it? Because otherwise, you know, you're just getting those to-do lists done and you're not actually doing any of that developmental work that's going to make it easier for the company and for yourself the people to move forward and grow it's such a good point tina because i think it feels counterintuitive right it's like i don't have time to go out and do training for two days i don't have time to work for it with a coach and then so many times they're like why didn't i do this 10 years ago but because it feels like you don't have the time but as you're as you've noted once you're actually doing that so many of the skills and things that you're learning now you bring that back to the office and maybe sometimes yeah. there's less on your plate because you're delegating maybe it's because you're actually speaking up for yourself and you're actually holding boundaries and you're pushing back and saying hey next time something else comes on for my plate I have these priorities. So what, what do you want me to let go in order to take on this priority you've just given me, right? So that you're now learning these skills that allow you to perhaps manage your time a little bit differently in the workplace. Exactly. Yeah. I'm guilty of it too. I always feel like, oh, I don't have the time to do this. I don't have, to, you know, I don't have the time to go to the gym. Well, <laughs> if you go, then, you know, everything else is better. I sleep better. I'm more productive during the day. Like, you know, we just think I never have the time. I never have the time. We make yeah. the time for what we yeah. feel is a priority. And so, and if we recognize it's all symbiotic, that, you know, it's actually going to make everything uh, work much more effectively, then we will realize the investment in that. So that's definitely, and, and people don't, you know, professional development, they think it's daunting that it's going to take so much time. You know, think of a, a two-day conference and how much you can benefit from that. You can go to one session and it can change your life or change how, you know, processes or whatever it may be. So you never know what's going to resonate with you. My, my theory, my philosophy, when I go to a conference or, you know, attend a professional development session, if I can get one thing, <laughs> one thing that I can implement that's going to actually change the way I do something in a more productive, positive, profitable manner, yeah. I'm good to go. Yes. I love that. I love that. Um, so Tina, one of the things I love to ask my guests is, uh, you know, what does inspirational leadership look like to you? And, and I'm going to actually take it another step because to me, part of being an inspirational leader is being an inclusive leader. So I'm going to make this twofold for you <laughs> as you think about what does it look like to be both an inspirational leader, but also an inclusive leader. Um, what are some of those qualities that come up for you? So when I started working for myself, I started using examples, never said names, but examples of really great leaders I had and, and use them in my keynotes as examples. But I also 
used a lot of the leaders I had that really didn't make the mark. And I actually emailed a couple of the great leaders that I had in my own life and said, this is why you were so good at what you did. And so some of those key pieces I found when it came to being inspirational and inclusive, first of all, was ensuring that um, credit was given to those that deserved that credit. And in an open, like in a, in a, making sure that they weren't taking credit for someone else's work. That was one thing I did notice sometimes. Um, my leaders that went into the, into the bad box <laughs> would do. They wouldn't offer credit to those that deserved it most. So, and being very open about that with everybody. This person deserves credit for this particular job. So that was such a key piece. Uh, I think really looking not at job descriptions as being in a box, but looking at skill set. So, you know, not looking at someone's age and deciding, you know, making those assumptions that this is the type of job they can do based on their age and vice versa. You know, you might have a millennial and you're assuming they're going to be awesome at the social media side. And in essence, you know, they're, they're really great at, um, you know, I don't know, business case analysis and, and just kind of getting, really looking at reverse mentoring, you know, and, and that piece I think is so important when it comes to inclusive and inspiring leadership. You know, how much are you encouraging reverse mentoring within your organization? Actually, um, that is actually a strategy to mitigate and manage bias is to implement, you know, or at least encourage mentoring programs within the workplace. And, and I'm a big believer of reverse mentoring. All of the contractors that I've hired for my own company, so if that be my website management, um, my graphic design, they're all millennials and I am not sadly a millennial anymore. And so definitely I, I don't look at age. I look at skill set and what they're bringing to the table. So that piece of, of inclusivity, I think it's so important as a leader not to stereotype and make assumptions. You know, sometimes we'll look at uh, somebody, you know, if, if someone is coming in from another country and they have a really strong accent, does that mean that they're not going to be uh, great in a marketing position? That would be, you know, an assumption that might be an unconscious bias we have. So really looking at people in a way where we're looking at their skill sets, um, culture fit, you know, we will use the terminology, oh, this person makes is great for our firm because they're a great culture fit. Well, that's actually uh, a sign of affinity bias. When we think that someone's great for our organization because they remind us of ourselves, mm -hmm. that's affinity bias. And that's a really hard one to identify. So, you know, making sure even our own human resource practices and the questions that we're asking people when they're onboarded are more inclusive so that we're recognizing, you know what, if someone's coming from a different country, and I've already said 20% is foreign born, they, not, they may not have been told when they were 16 that you need to sell yourself and be confident and go into that you know, job with confidence and selling yourself. And that would not actually be what a collectivist would do. So a collectivist is someone that's much more family-oriented, community-oriented. Our top source immigrant countries coming into Canada right now are all collectivists. India, China, Pakistan, Philippines, Korea. They're all collectivists. So what that means is they're much more... Um, into group harmony and much more team oriented and community oriented, family oriented. They're not going to boast about their own accomplishments. 
Yeah. Does that mean they're not a good, good culture fit for the organization or does that, is that cultural? And that's why they didn't answer the question in the way that you, you thought fit. So it's really now reverse engineering this, this stuff that we're doing in the workplace and, and looking at it from a completely different lens. If you're doing business the same way you've done it 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even five years ago, you're missing the boat on potential opportunity. Mm, so true. Um, and I just think that's something we need to always be conscious of. It's you need to be constantly evolving. There's been so much research. If you look at some of the Fortune, um, Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies from like 25 years ago, so many of them are not, they're not here anymore. And it's because of that. They just thought they could keep on doing things the same way. So I think that's incredibly important. And just for um, people listening to the show that maybe aren't familiar with reverse mentoring, can you just explain what that is? Yeah, usually we choose mentors that are maybe, you know, uh, within the job, they might be a couple levels up, they might be, you know, even our, if, if, if we want to work towards a, a certain position, you know, we might choose someone internally, if we're looking at someone externally, you know, we might pick someone that we really look up to, but usually a senior to us. Reverse mentoring, it would be someone like maybe someone junior to us and how much junior meaning in, in age or in position, um, you know, that we can learn so much from other people that, you know, might be younger than us, you know, generate, I learned so much from my own children. And uh, of course, they're both Gen Z, you know, generation of hope. Uh, am I their parent? Absolutely. But I don't just look at that as an opportunity for me to teach them. They teach me every day. And so I think that just being open to that learning opportunity and recognizing you can receive learning, you know, from every aspect of, of your life, if you're, if you're open to that. And I think sometimes we think, oh, well, they're younger than us. What am I going to learn from them? They don't have the experience that, that I have. And if you really, you know, take the time to invest in some of those interesting, courageous conversations, you'll learn that they are looking at things in it from a different lens. And so that in itself, we can learn so much from. So I, I definitely, yes, experience is so important, but you know, that's sometimes we're just looking at the, the cultural like that. I, it's called the iceberg, right? We see what we, what we can see. We see someone as female. We see someone might be a visible minority, but what's underneath? You know, what else are they bringing to the table that we just wouldn't even know unless we took the time to ask? Absolutely. I mean, so much value. And, and I'm just such a believer too. And, and that's why I wanted to start with your story. Um, if we could be spending more time just getting to know everyone that we work with and their stories, um, mm -hmm. they're so rich. And we learn things about ourselves through hearing about other people's stories. And, and there's just so much beautiful reflection and, and meaningful connection. Um, I do want to acknowledge, Tina, that we are still in a situation with a global pandemic. And so um, there's a, a lot of remote work happening. And so I, I know that's a, a topic that you speak on as well. And so when it comes to communication, diversity and inclusion, like all of those different things, um, what are some recommendations you have around the communication piece and, and how leaders can really be um, inclusive? And, and I'm going to also bring in, you know, have some of that empathy and compassion when we're connecting with people not seeing them day to day in the office in the same way. Right. So you mean, so working virtually, how do we keep that connection and, and inclusivity? Well, I definitely think it's so important still to touch, touch base with people. And there's different ways we can do that. So a lot of people are experiencing Zoom fatigue. Well, first of all, you don't have to have your cameras on all the time. <laughs> and I think if you look at global companies that have been doing this type of work remotely 
way before the pandemic, they kind of learned really quickly that you don't have to actually have cameras on all the time. All you need is the audio. And part of that was due to bandwidth. You know, to save the bandwidth, we would just keep the audio on. It, it can also be really hard, not just for introverts, but for many people to have those cameras on and feel like, you know, you're six inches away from a camera. <laughs> And so just, you know, giving permission, because I think that's, you know, people, I'm hearing a lot of criticism. People are keeping their cameras off. Okay, why are they keeping their cameras off? You know, being compassionate about why would those cameras be off? I had a, a, a person who was doing a podcast with me and she kept her camera off. And I, and then I realized after she had a three month baby, three month old baby at home and she was breastfeeding. And she was very used to keeping her camera off for, for that reason. So fair enough. We don't know what's happening behind the scenes, yeah. you know, so just being recognizing that, you know, there might be stuff. There's another, um, the biases act. This is an interesting bias about working from home. So there's the socioeconomic bias. And when you have a camera on and you are being judged now by the background of your, your home and your space, and people are now potentially judging you on, on that socioeconomic piece, deciding, huh, you know, that, that home doesn't maybe look like my home. That can be really hard for people sometimes to have that judgment. So, you know, just being recognizing that we're all coming, we may all be in the same ocean, but we're all in very different boats right now when it comes to the pandemic and so just being very uh, coming from a place of compassion rather than criticism coming from a place of of inquiry rather than assumption i think is is really important right now i but i do think that you know checking in is so so very important one one thing i actually tell firms to do uh if they wish there's um have you heard kristen of bomb bomb Yes, yes, yeah. the videos. You can send little video messages. Yeah. yeah so, so some of the things that I've loved that friends and colleagues have done, you know, I, I, I'm extroverted. I don't know if that comes through, but I'm, I'm very <laughs> extroverted. So the pandemic for me was really, really hard, you know, definitely in the beginning when we were in, in shutdown. And I would have friends send th these videos and sometimes using BombBomb or WhatsApp, you can use, you know, you can send longer videos. And just that touchstone of having, you know, seeing them, hearing them, being how they would have been with me live is, is so, it was so touching for me and it really made me feel that, that connection, you know, so if you're a leader and you, you know, you were that leader that would go into someone's office and maybe just, you know, see how their day was going or talk about something like some sports and, and, and you feel like, wait a minute, I'm missing that piece right now. Send a bomb bomb, you know, mm -hmm. like, cause it'll, and the beauty of bomb bomb is it'll, it'll send longer than 30 seconds, which usually a, a text would do. So you can send a longer, you know, video and it doesn't take you really much mm -hmm. time. It's easy, easy to upload. And it just creates connection in a way that, you know, we just have to be get, get really creative and really innovative mm -hmm. with how we're connecting still but it still needs to happen i know you know a lot of professional speakers like you and i we were suffering in the beginning definitely because uh companies just were pivoting and so we weren't necessarily and we we were the first a sector to go and we will be the last one to come back yeah. but interestingly enough i can honestly say i'm busier than ever with my own business and I'm, I'm really blessed to say that but i think part of it is you know you can still create a virtual connection and i actually find in some ways the virtual connection especially with audiences can actually be more intimate 
different mm -hmm. than um, with a live connection because now people, you know, I kind of had to change the way I, I presented. Usually I would be very grandiose on the stage, you know, using all the elements of the stage. Well, now I'm six inches away from a screen. I kind of treat it almost like we're having coffee. And it's just you and I, you and I, even though I, like I did an event on Tuesday, it was 1100 people. Well, I didn't even think about it. It wasn't 1100 people. It was just, you know, me and this individual having a coffee and talking about concepts. And I think, you know, just changing the way you communicate to adapt, because I don't think you can pivot without adapting. And I think people are pivoting, but they're not adapting. And mm. so it's, it's like taking a, a, an animal from the zoo and putting them out in the wild. Well, you know what? They still need to adapt right. <laughs> to, to the environment. Yes. And so I think that was that's the key piece because I noticed even with myself, I was able to pivot, but until I adapted, I wasn't I wasn't as successful in the space as I wanted to be. That doesn't mean I don't miss. You know, I really yes. miss my audiences. I miss the connection. But I'm finding other ways to connect and I'm really enjoying it in a, in a different way. And in fact, it's actually taught me that I'll change the way I, I uh, present live because I've had to change the way I present this way. And I, I adapted and innovated and I'm going to actually adopt elements and do it when I go live because I've liked it. This really points to the silver linings and that there's so much learning available if you're willing to allow yourself to experiment and explore and like allow yourself like something might work, something might not work. But if you don't love, give yourself the space to experiment and play a little bit. I'm such a big believer in play. We get to this whole we're adults now and we're adulting and there's no more time for play or fun. And I know, Tina, like that's what you do so well when you're up on that stage is you bring people back to that playfulness fun on these topics because guess what you don't become adults and all of a sudden the fun and play oh we don't care about fun or play anymore come on of course we do right so. absolutely when I do um I have an exercise where I'll have leaders um go through their own leadership traits and one of those traits is fun are you a fun leader and then I'll ask point blank who put their hands up um and they're very sheepishly like they're almost embarrassed yes. to put their hands up and say, I, I put myself as a fun leader, you know, recognize that profitability is tied to positivity. And if you can be a leader that brings positivity, laughter, laughter is a metric, you know, so we really have to look at our offices. And, and I talked about silence before, you know, I remember, you know, when I had a real job, uh, I definitely had an office where we would laugh and, you know, some, some employees would be like, Oh, they're not working. They're not working. That's, you know, right. If you're, if you're laughing at the workplace, well, clearly you're not working. And I'm like, if you're laughing at the workplace, you're actually creating employee engagement where people actually want to come every day. When we are spending more time at the workplace than we are with our own families, I want to go to a place I want to be. Uh, and, and that can be done. You don't have to spend a lot of money. You don't have to spend much at all to have fun work environments that are positive and as essentially uh, they become more profitable too as a direct result. And that's a stat. Yes. Yes. I, you know, I had a, a client, um, the leader wanted to do something um, every week where it was just like a half an hour, hour, they get together um, calling it happy hour, but no alcohol involved, but it was about just, you know, doing something fun, just team connection. And so they do these different games and then he'd ask the group to give ideas. And one of them, they came up with everyone wanted to do MTV cribs and they had so much fun because they'd show like, Hey, look at, this is my dog and introduce the animals and all that kind of stuff. But everyone felt so much more, 
were deeply connected because they were getting to know other parts of them where they might show like, hey, this is where I play hockey or different things like that. Um, and then there was another one where they, they, they were, they'd get a meme and then they'd have to make a presentation with the meme, like so many fun activities. Totally. And you know, what was so interesting, Tina, is in the beginning, he said, you know, I really experienced a shift, Kristen, because at first I felt like that I was not working. And when I was doing these things that it was not productive and I almost felt like bad and I was doing something I'm not supposed to be doing. And then what he started to recognize is that the team was giving such great feedback and how much we love this. And I really feel like we're all getting to know you and each other better and happiness was going up and joy with the work during a time where let's admit, like we need some joy when there's a lot going on right now and the pressures and the stress. And he said, you know, it really made me recognize that I have permission to bring in play and fun and added bonus, it actually has a huge impact on engagement and productivity. So I think sometimes it is a bit of a shift. It's a mindset shift around it, it's okay because there's sometimes been stories. I know I even talked to my dad about sometimes about this and things have shifted a little bit as well, but he truly believed there was a person he was allowed to be at home and then he had to go to work and he had to bring his work hat on and the work hat was serious and no joking. And, and I remember one time one of his colleagues, she said, you know, we love it every time you kids come into the office because we see this whole other side to your dad and yeah. he's fun and he's playful and he laughs, but he really truly believed that he thought he didn't have permission and that's not what it looked like to be a leader. Right. Yeah. And I think part of that is generational too. Right. I think that leaders now are truly evolving and seeing the benefit of, yes. of laughter and play and creativity and how, how important all of that is at, at the workplace. I had, uh, I was the president of, of a board. Um, well, actually the, the Calgary chapter of the Canadian Association of Professional Speakers. And I had a motto for our board and it was, you know, get shit done while having fun. <laughs> and, it was, and it was, you know, it was, and that was, you know, every, every president always has sort of their motto yes. that they live by. And that was sort of ours. And I, and I, it was interesting because when I first joined the board, uh, as president, um, you know, I immediately went into work mode and I immediately was like, okay, what do we got to get done? And one of my board members, Tim, uh, he actually stepped back and went, wait a minute, wait a minute. We, we have to like go around the table and get to know one another a little bit. You know, what do we speak on? You know, who are you married to? And all of a sudden <laughs> it shifted and I'm like, oh my gosh, you're right. Like, and that was such, and I, and I did mention it at one of our meetings. I just kind of said, you know, I kind of forgot that we're people too, and that we have these relationships that make us, you know, so much more interesting than the job titles that we're currently holding for these, for the board. And, and what it did actually was, yes, we were board members and we worked so well together, but I can honestly say we became friends. Yeah. And that is so rare, you know, to have that happen. And I think it really, it really projected our success as a board too. You know, we heard from members that they had never felt more seen or heard that it was a very inclusive chapter. Um, we didn't make it really always about, you know, guests that we were bringing in. We made it more about our membership and, and we just changed it. And that came from the leadership 
right? So, you know, you can be a leader in a board capacity or volunteer capacity, but it can have real impact. And, and that was a beautiful thing to watch, to watch that chapter evolve and to watch the board evolve. And, and yeah, I can honestly say we're still friends, you know, it's, it's yeah. still something that's so, you know, and that I sure, sure realized with the pandemic, you know, I, I was joking with a friend, I said, COVID gave me clarity. And and she's like, oh my gosh, you got to make a write a book called COVID gave me clarity. But I really feel that way. I felt like you know, all of a sudden my work became so much more purposeful. I also realized who my true friends were. You know, the ones that came out with COVID uh, definitely were were the ones that I realized. You know, and some came out of the woodwork. You know, those relationships that I never in, in a million years thought, yeah, these were, these were relationships that maybe I took for granted before COVID and now became sort of my touchstones. So yeah, COVID in some ways, I'm not, I'm not maybe at the point where I'm seeing the silver linings per se of COVID, but I definitely think it, it gave me clarity and I think it, it can give a lot of people a lot of clarity. Mm-hmm. Yes. I've, I've noticed that so much with my clients, really a, a chance to go back and reflect on what matters and, and what their true values are. And sometimes a reset, right? A reset around those priorities. Um, Tina, as I experienced with all my guests, I never wanted to end, but now we're getting to the end. And so I would like to um, give you an opportunity as we, we close off today's conversation to leave a final thought with our audience. You know, I, I have final thought. I, I think I said it already, but I kind of talked about that, you know, we may not all be in the same ocean or sorry, we're, we're may all be in the same what did I say before? It sounded We're all so in the before. same ocean, but not the same boat. <laughs> I'm like, I sounded smart before, like <laughs> half an hour ago. And, and I really, I really, really believe that, that, you know, we really have to come from a place of compassion, not criticism. We really need to take uh, self-care really important right now. I do believe COVID gave me clarity. And like you said, your values really start to become crystal clear. I have noticed, and this is a beautiful thing, I have noticed people have taken such an interest, you know, with when, with Black Lives Matters, and they really started doing a bit more of a deeper dive in understanding issues, you know, um, Orange Shirt Day was a couple days ago. And I, you know, I think people are really taking an interest in a way that I've never seen before. So I really think there is a shift occurring in a positive way, but I think the key to that is to keep the conversation going. Mm. And so even if you find the conversation difficult, even if you find it uncomfortable, you know, keep that conversation going. I think that's so important. And even if it's hard, just keep it going. Yeah, wise words. Um, thank you so much for being here today, Tina. Where I'm, We're going to have show notes with all of your information, but where can people find you? Uh, best place to find me would probably be on my website, which is tworksforyou.ca. So T-W-O-R-K-S-F-O-R-Y-O-U.ca, tworksforyou.ca. It's amazing that I have a marketing degree because when I first started the company, I called it T-Works with T being Tina and works being the goal. And so... <laughs> But you know what? For some reason, people remember it. Yes. So 
I like it. I love the creativity. Oh, well, lack, for lack of, but, uh, but for some reason it's stuck. And I think people, you know, Varagis, my last name, sometimes is a bit more difficult for some to pronounce. And so, but T-Works isn't. And so, yeah, definitely. And I am, you know, I, like you, I'm very, very active on social media. And so, you know, whatever your happy place is on, on social media, I tend to post three to four times a week on Instagram and and LinkedIn and Facebook and it's and Twitter and it's really meant to help people continue with their learnings. Um, I let people wonder where I am on the weekends. I definitely don't do any posts on the weekends, but I really do try to be very intentional with my social media as well. So, you know, those, those, all those uh, platforms, they'll be able to find me as well. And all those links are on my website. So definitely. And I highly encourage, I'm very extroverted. So please do. Yes please do definitely uh, connect with me in whatever way, shape or form you want to. I'd highly encourage it. Awesome. And I, I can also say that Tina is someone who engages beautifully on uh, social media. So look out for her there. And I want to let everybody else know that um, please come to kristenharcourt.com to continue the conversation, continue the dialogue. If you're a leader that's wanting to have support in some of these areas, uh, please reach out as well as organizations who are looking to um, really improve areas of emotional intelligence, mindfulness, um, humanizing the workplace. Have a wonderful day, everyone.